outside of the skill assessment you're trying to find in the exercise, a lot of the things that make or break the right hire is the fit, right? Like, can we really bounce ideas off each other? Can we really work well together? Are we going to, you know, and so on. When you are thinking about the show step in hiring, be thoughtful about it and tie it back to the things that we're discussing here. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. Before we dive into this week's episode, I want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, which is Demandbase. Demandbase helps B2B companies hit their revenue goals using fewer resources. How do they do that? Uh, by using the power of AI to identify and engage the accounts and buying groups most likely to purchase. They're going to combine your sales and marketing data with their own validated B2B data. They're going to put that through their AI engine to create account intelligence that informs every step of your buyer's journey. Uh, They deliver accurate company, contact, technographic, engagement, and intent data right where you work every day, whether that's in your CRM, collaboration tools, browsers, and more. Demandbase is going to allow you to spot opportunities earlier and orchestrate smarter sales and marketing motions. And you can go see this all live in action on their website, demandbase.com, and check out their sales intelligence tool. Let's get into it. Hello, and welcome back to the GTM podcast. I am finally back off the road, back in Vancouver, back on the road next week. So we're uh, we're banking some episodes, but been super excited to record this one for a while. Uh, again, I say this quite frequently, but there are episodes where I get to just hang out with uh, a good friend, in this case, two good friends, uh, and talk shop. Uh, this is what we do when we're together anyways, uh, so why not You know, all get together, hit record, and, uh, and give it out to the listeners. I am joined by David Teichner, the co-founder of Accelerate HC, and Chuck Brotman, the co-founder of Blueprint Expansion. Chuck, David, welcome to the show, guys. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Pumped to have you both. And uh, this is only the second time that we've had two guests uh, on, but I thought it was important to bring you both on. You've been such great uh, partners of the fund uh, and have done so much for our portfolio companies in terms of hiring, thinking about growth strategies. So sometimes it's fun to get two perspectives uh, at once. Um, But I guess... Chuck, I'll start with you. Um, you know, one thing that I like about both you and David is you both have operator experience. You've actually led sales teams. You've built businesses, and recruiting kind of came later in your your journey. Um, what got you into recruiting in in the first place? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't uh, I don't know that I'm always sure the exact moment in time, but I, I can tell you, I've been in in you know tech sales and sales management roles for about. 20 years. I'm a career switcher myself. My fun fact about me, I actually was in the academic world many, many years back. I uh, have a doctor in history and discovered tech during the original dot-com boom days. Um, you know, spent 14 years at On24 where I was in various sales and sales management roles, pre-sales, channel sales, SMB and mid-market. I do remember the time sort of having a admiration for the, the work done by great external and internal recruiters and 
sort of the, the, the notion of sort of spending my days talking to talent, aligning talent with companies, like always seemed mildly attractive, even though I, I knew there was a bit of a stigma to it, never quite knew why. But um, in any event, I, I left on 24, went on to work as a sales leader in logistics tech, education tech, started Blueprint about three and a half years ago. Initially, our focus was to offer a, a broad range of services to help companies with expansion, expansion out of expensive tech hubs. Recruiting was going to be a part of that service offering. Then came COVID. The only part of our service offering that mattered in the market was recruiting. And so we kind of found our, found our way to you know, a full focus on recruiting and really haven't looked back since then and just absolutely love the work. I didn't know this fact, but you have a doctorate in history. I, I feel had, to, like, had to let a new fact fly on the podcast, right? I, I love it. I love it. So I guess I got to ask, what is your favorite little known history fact that we can enlighten the folks with? Oh, geez. I got to give that one. And this some was thought. not planned. So this is right, <laughs> right in the hot seat. Let's see, see if those, those years of schooling paid off for you, Chuck. Well, I'll answer it. I'll answer it slightly differently and say that what a lot of people, kind of outside of the academic world, don't know is that within it, you, there's um, there's a, there's a lot of like you know healthy pressure. You have to specialize. So right. in, in my in my world, I I focused on Anglo American cultural and intellectual history, late nineteenth, early twentieth centuries, and my dissertation was sort of sort of uh, between that and looking at history of music and history of science and. I enjoyed that work, but I also say that, you know, being outside of academia now, it's nice to not sort of be constrained to having to specialize and, and focus in specific areas and, you know, to just think about just the importance of broader historical trends and, again, not, not from the perspective of having to be, you know, specialized in such an intense way. Enjoy the work, but it's also nice to be outside of that world too. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that was a great way to, to skirt that, uh, skirt that question. Uh, no, I love it. And maybe, maybe we can, we can revisit that in the sense of, you know, for sure, uh, career specialization versus generalization. I would love to get both your, your thoughts on that. Um, but David, uh, s- similar question to, to yourself. I know you've had an incredible, you know, background building companies, uh, exiting companies. What brought you to recruiting? Well, first, I got to say, I'm so not uh, impressive compared to Chuck. I had no idea either, This uh, the genius we had on here, this professor. So uh, uh, very impressive. Uh, and so, but in terms of my story, so yeah, I mean, look, I, I've spent 20 years pre-recruiting, building companies, call it MarTech, FinTech, just loosely defined, had different levels of success, some you know, bootstrapped some, raised significant capital, had multiple exits. Along the way, invested in multiple companies, advised multiple companies, and um, a little more than seven years ago, probably eight years ago or so, we sold the last company I was at to a private equity firm, and after about a year there, became uninteresting to me. Um, and I really tried to think about what do I want to do next? And you know, I kept thinking about a million different ideas and different problems that needed to be solved. But one thing I just became so obsessed with and fixated on was this companies, some companies that you, whether they were mine, like meaning I founded them or joined them or companies I invested in, but some I looked at and I'm like, I thought it was kind of a flyer. Like it was a neat idea, but didn't know that the TAM was that big. Didn't know they didn't have tier one VCs, but just something about it I thought was interesting and, and I would place a bet. And then others were, I looked at these companies go, boy, this is the next like decacorn. I mean, these, this thing is going to go like around the moon 20 times. Right. And and then I would fast forward and go, okay, some of them that I thought were going to go around the moon 20 times just fizzled. And some of these others, you're going, man, I didn't know if this would really 
turned into something and it just soared. And I kept scratching my head going, why? Like, what is the difference between these? What are the variables that make something really successful versus not? And of course, there's a lot of answers. There's a lot of variables. But the one common one that was just became so obvious, and when I say it is the most obvious answer, is the people. Like, and, and I don't just mean were they good people and whatever, but like the right attributes, the right chemistry, the right everything based on that stage of the company. And the answer is most don't do that right. And when I looked at that and I'm going, well, why? I can go on forever and it'll take up this whole podcast, so I won't go through all the whys. But the two most kind of common things were that I looked at, I was like, look, most founders, and honestly, even though I say founders, and I understand who our audience is here, but like at any stage of a company, the hiring managers is probably the better way to say it. They're slammed. They've got a million things going on in their day and their life. The idea that they're going to become now experts in, number one, really understanding what they need and then really knowing how to identify it, it's just not realistic. And I was somebody in that those shoes, right? So I'm going, that's one big problem. But the other is, you know, you then kick it off to, you know, internal or external resources, of which a lot of them don't also have the operating experience. So because of that, you kind of get this like compounding effect in some ways where it's like, I'm not really sure what I need. I think I know what I need. And, and this person thinks they know they can help me. And then you wake up a bunch of months later and it's wrong. So Long story short is I kept looking at that problem and there's massive consequence, as we all know, to not bringing on the right types of people in the company at the right stage. And I just became very passionate and said, I want to do what some may say is the least sexy of businesses I've created, but something I thought really was going to change the life of companies and founders and really take the years of operating experience, apply the knowledge and understanding to a recruiting business. And that was my passion for it. We started it seven years ago and, and, uh, haven't looked back since. Very cool, you know, background. And I imagine you can pull from all those years of experience when you're you're now working with founders and, and their respective teams. And I think what you said there is just becoming more and more true. You know, we often talk about, you know, technology moats are now basically starting to disappear with a lot of advancements in AI. Like it is bu- easier to build technology than it ever has been. And so it really is your final moat is your people and the way those people execute. And, you know, you can build all the best systems and process and everything in the world, but if you don't have the right people running them, you know, you're just going to, you know, be banging up against, you know, rock again and again. Um, But identifying those folks is, is difficult. And I guess I'll go back to, you know, this, this idea of generalization versus specialization. And I'll ask this question in uh, early stage. We'll say, you know, pre-seed, seed A folks. Broad strokes, should I be looking for generalists or specialists at that uh, point in time? And David, I'll, I'll start with you. It's a good question. And it's a, it's a little bit of a tricky one to answer straight up that way, right? Because I think there's a lot of the other context that needs to be around that, right? And so it's, what role are we talking about? What are the goals? And so I think it's even like the approach a lot of times those stage companies, like I, I'm not to speak for Chuck, he'll speak as well, but I'm sure we both, I know we've talked about it. I think we're very aligned on here, which is, you know, really digging with the companies. Like, what are you trying to accomplish right now? And sometimes they know the answer. Sometimes they actually really don't. And so it's almost a consultative approach. And I think as we kind of uncover that, depending upon the answer, we'll say, here is the roles you need and the specific requirements and skill sets of those people. And then to your answer to your question is that might say a generalist is fine. And it's really about the scrappiness and the hunger and the desire and the whatever those 
criteria are, or depending upon what the answer right may, might be, is you still have to have all those attributes, but boy, you need somebody with a very specific industry knowledge or very specific, whatever it might be. But it's a, just, a, it's really a hard one to answer until you kind of go, what is the problem we're trying to solve as a business right now? And how would these potentially people or what roles would help solve that? I mean, Chuck, I don't know what you think, but. No, totally agree. I think, um, I mean, at a certain level, I think the fundamental problem in hiring and, and where hiring often gets so much more difficult than it needs to be is, is when you're running a search looking for, you know, a specific person or, 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 or proxy for what you think you need versus defining, you know, the skills, behaviors, and competencies that, that you believe in a, at a certain level pressure test it will make for success in that role. And so kind of going back to even talking briefly about my background or you know, generalist versus specialist, you know, Fortunately, I don't see very many companies looking to hire you know former PhDs. But you know, I often hear about folks looking for people with backgrounds in X or Y or Z without taking that step back, saying, "What does success look like in this role? What are we trying to achieve? Why do we need this in terms of our overarching business goals? And then, what are those competencies that we need to assess for, regardless of one's background or what they look like on paper, regardless of their credentials? What do we need? How do we assess for it and validate?" And I think when you run through that kind of process, your hiring gets a lot easier. And that's something I've seen in, in my years in recruiting and, and going back to just my work as an operator. When I took the time to nail those fundamentals and make sure we knew what we were looking for, how we're aligning multiple stakeholders in the business to help with that assessment, we were really able to minimize mistakes and make a lot of superb hires. And when, by, by contrast, when I made those mistakes, and I, I hear this often in the market, it's when people say, you know, I need X, I need Y, I need Z, without un, sort of unpacking why they're thinking that way and whether that's the best way to find someone that can drive the business goals that are needed. And this is, you know, why I think at the early stage, it makes a lot of sense to find a partner like a Chuck, like a David to work with because you don't have... We've all been part of early stage companies. You don't often have time to build a skills assessment, a behavior assessment, a competency assessment, because you're moving too quickly. And when you look at your priorities of, hey, I got to bring revenue in or I got to ship this product or feature, you know, a skills assessment is going to fall to the wayside and you're going to rely on gut. You're going to rely on instinct. I think a lot of founders fall into the trap of, they probably have pretty good instincts, so they overly rely on them, and then that can get you in in hot water pretty quickly. Um, but I guess looking at the landscape right now, bad hires have always cost a lot of money uh, for startups and, and tech companies. Uh, a lot of that was gaps were filled by VC money. There was like a a tap that was just kept flowing. Um, so bad hires, you know, they weren't the end of the world. You know, you you maybe not hit your goals quite as quickly as you wanted to, but you can always, you know, figure it out uh, because there was more investment dollars coming in. Now that's not the case. Now you make one, two, three bad hires at the wrong time, and you're potentially out of business. There are no yeah. options for you. You know, there's no VC that's going to come and save you if your metrics aren't there. Uh, and it really can come to a few bad hires. And so how, and this is a broad question, but something I want to wrestle with with you guys is how can you decrease the chance of making a bad hire 
at the early stage. And and Chuck, I'll, I'll start with you because you you did outline a few. You know, maybe go into more detail of like skills assessment, behavior assessment, competencies. How you actually go about doing that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and to answer, I want to go back to what you said about gut because I think you raise a really important topic. And I've seen a lot of really thoughtful leaders, you know, sort of post content around how when they've made their biggest hiring mistakes, it's because they've ignored their gut. And I want to kind of challenge that a bit. I think it's it's sort of easy and convenient to blame ignoring the gut for bad hires. And, and, and certainly that can be maybe a small factor. But I think, you know, if you really reflect on the, those mistakes, it, it really comes down to lack of process and structure. And, and, and so at a, at a simple level, what I would encourage founders, leaders alike to really think about is just like you don't go to market, you know, you don't try to scale your organization until you have a repeatable sales process, you need a repeatable hiring process, right? You need, you need structure. And, and that it comes down to these fundamentals, like what competencies do we need? What mix of hard and soft skills? What does success look like? Whether it's about, you know, acquiring, you know, enterprise revenue in certain verticals or sectors, about velocity selling into a much, you know, bigger, larger ICP. Um, if you're looking for pre-sales talent, needing certain skills to help accelerate, you know, large deal velocity. Uh, again, there's different roles across go to market, but it starts with the fundamentals. What do we need? Why? And then what do we want to assess for? And then recognizing that that can come in all different backgrounds and, and, and flavors. And one thing I'll, I'll bring up briefly, and I know this is probably a topic from the day, but this is why I think hiring leaders should be taking a healthy page from DEI, right? Like so often DEI gets carved out as like that's HR manages that they set our diversity goals. No, but the fundamental learning from DEI should be that that people come from so many different walks of life and background, right? And any one of us is more likely to build rapport and affinity with folks that we have more in common with, right? If you want to find excellence, you have to be aware of that, where your gut may lead you to mediocrity, right? If you want to hire the best, I'm not saying gut is wrong, but you have to check your gut with process and structure, just like you sell and go to market. Hmm. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I, I look back at one of the best hires I ever made and he had a brief stint in media sales and then at the time was literally like digging ditches in construction and this right. kid had a fire in him that I knew if I put a little bit of you know uh knowledge and 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 opportunity in front of him he was going to just go and now right I believe he's the VP of BD, still at the same company that I hired him, you know, seven years later. And the amount of enterprise value that he has driven is far beyond pretty much any employee there. He's probably like one of the longest, you know, employees that they've had. And um, talk about diversity of a background that that wasn't a, the perfect hire by any means for for that role. But uh, yeah, getting rid of some of our internal biases is super important. Really well yeah. said, David. Thoughts on you know ways we can decrease the chance of making those those bad hires. Yeah, and and, and I do want to even say one other thing. I know you when you teed it up, you know you mentioned like the cost, mm -hmm. right, of the bad hire and so on. I think one thing that gets kind of sometimes overlooked on cost is the opportunity cost, not just the hard cost, right? And so when I think about that, you know, you could apply this to marketing sales, frankly, any function. Right. And you, you say, OK, I want to go hire this person. Six months later, OK, they're not right. We wasted, you know, whatever, 75 grand. But the reality is there's a pipeline that didn't get built. There are things that are going to now bleed into the next quarter, next quarter. So your true cost is much greater than sometimes what I think people think it is. Um, and, you know, when you 
and again, I know I'm going to sound like a broken record and it's going to repeat even some of the things Chuck said and I said in the prior answer, but so much of it, I think, comes to because they're not really clear on what they need. And when you're not clear on what you need, you're throwing stuff against a wall and you're hoping something sticks. Whether you're thinking you're doing that, that's really what you're doing, right? Like, hey, but if you take the time to really have, whether you're doing it internally or with a partner to go, what is it we're trying to accomplish? What is it we need? Is it demand gen? Is Are we looking for a certain number of leads in a certain sector? Like, what is it we're trying to really accomplish here? And then you can use that to really build not like just a whatever job description, but a true spec on here are the things we really need to have. And then piggybacking on this things that you and Chuck were just talking about is, you know, I, I, one of the things that scares me a lot when I hear a founder or hiring manager say something like, oh, I'm just going to shake the trees and see what falls and that's where I'm going to go. And that's not a process, right? That is what is the easiest path to put somebody in the seat. And that by no means means it's the right person to put in the seat. And when you're trying to build something, like if you're make, like your biggest investments that have the biggest potential to have positive or negative ROI are people in your org. You got to take that to such a serious degree that not only you're doing that upfront work, but you're really building a process to really, I don't want to say cast a very wide net, but I think you get the point, build a real pipeline to really go through. And then that structure that, you know, that Chuck's talked about is like, I can't tell you how many times I'll talk to clients of all stages and say, hey, what's your scorecard? How are you actually evaluating the talent when they come in? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be like a true crazy skill assessment. But if you're very thoughtful about here are the five or 10 things that really matter, how are you looking at those things? How are you measuring them and, and putting a score of value against them? And then if you're having multiple team members, whether it's a board member or another founder or whatever it is, interview, make sure everybody understands that scorecard. So everybody understands how to use it. I've seen literally where you look at, okay, I've had, you know, my co-founder, my, my, one of my board members interview the person and, and whatever they say the outcome is. And then literally I'll have a conversation. I'm like, Hey, so Scott, when you went to that interview, like, what were you looking for? I don't know. I was just reading whatever was on the scorecard. Yep. And you're like, that's just not right. Right. Like you got to be really aligned. And so I think, you know, you have to, but if you, if you just did the scorecard and you didn't do that upfront thinking, then the scorecard is not going to make sense. If you just, you know, shake the tree, you're not going to get enough of a wide. So I think, and, and by, by and, and then I'll shut up on this. I think, you know, people sometimes think, well, if you run a process, it's going to take too long. Like, no, I actually think you're going to get there faster and you're going to get there with a much bigger, better result than by just saying, okay, I think Scott's the right guy. I've known him before. He's the guy I'm going to put him in. And it, you might be the right guy, but again, right. you run the process and, follow a structure you're just not going to know. And can I add one, one point to David, Scott? Of course. I think it's so important that process is not not conceived of as slowing things down. And and I think also a great point that David made is, you know, this we're not talking about dozens of competent. I mean, it's it's it can be a small, finite list, but it has to be defined and you have to orchestrate that process. And a great example where I would imagine companies are missing regularly now is, you know, in this business context with a focus on efficient growth and more scrutiny of, you know, hiring, you know, sales dev and, and having sellers that can't, you know, fill their own funnel, right? There's probably a lot of focus in hiring on prospecting acumen and skills, right? But imagine a, a world where you're looking to hire like an enterprise account executive and you build that in your process, but you haven't you haven't coordinated things. And lo and behold, you know, you're you're scrutinizing for that. You're using the bulk of your time as the hiring manager looking at prospecting acumen and then and then you bring in executives or your founder and they're asking the same questions right they're assessing the same areas and then nobody's assessing this person for values alignment or negotiation closing skills business acumen right 
um, resiliency, what, whatever else matters to you, because you simply haven't put pen to paper, right? Gone through that process and made sure that everybody's assessing and, and that you're being thoughtful. If you want to double down in certain areas, right? If prospecting skills is one of those, fine, but make sure other things don't get missed. And it's not complicated, but a lot of people going back to that gut thing are just not doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Great addition. I, I guess trying to push, uh, you both to like, and everything's contextual, of course. Um, yeah. But for, for listeners who are like, okay, I hear you guys, I get it, we're moving fast. How many skills or behaviors can I actually test for in a interview process? Because you can't, it can't be 20, uh, it can't be even 15, is it three, is it five? Of course, it's going to be a little bit different, but if you can put a number that you think is, is doable, um, what would that number be? Uh, David, I'll, I'll start with you. I would say five, max seven. And, and you know, you, you know, there's always going to be the obvious one, two, and three, and then the four and five are not going to be so obvious, and that's going to take that real critical thinking. And maybe there's a six or seven, but you don't need to go wider than that. And, and and but they have to be thoughtful, really, really thoughtful ones. But I think that's why I go back to like when I, like we build scorecards ourselves. We do sometimes with our clients and help them think about it. And it's it's never more than seven. Um, Rarely more than seven. Uh, and, and so that's why I think to me, though, that would be the right number. I totally agree. I think it's five to seven. Now, I one thing too, though, Scott, going back to a word you used in terms of testing, I think you, you raise another important point, which is, I mean, there's behavioral interviewing, right, which is important and you should be assessing for all of this. But I think going back to this, this is how companies should think. If you have like uh, an exercise, whether it's, you know, a mock role play for an SMB hire or a 30, 60, 90 for an enterprise rep, what, you know, there's different ways to do it. I don't have a certain recommendation. I mean, I think there's, you can be flexible, but the key thing is what do you feel like you need to validate by seeing an action? And that also needs to tie to competence. So maybe like two of those seven are considered critical. That's what you built into the show, not tell st- stage, right? should be later stage, not early on. You should feel like you've already moved someone through that process and either have your candidate or feel comfortable you have a finalist. And then it's about doing that while balancing it with you know, being respectful of the candidate's time, which you know, maybe is a conversation for another day. But the point being, when you are thinking about the show step in hiring, be thoughtful about it and tie it back to the things that we're discussing mm-hmm. here. Yeah, that's great. Um, I'll add, ask one more question. Uh, specific question which is what is the optimal number of interviews these days because it's all over the map i'm hearing some of these larger companies still doing like six seven interviews and it's just like that's insane your your great talent is gonna get fed up at like five you know um and then on the flip side again we we talk about gut and there's people moving too fast and they're just like i've worked with this person in the past just push them through you know, have them meet so-and-so and and let's rock and roll. Um, What, uh, and I'll start with you, Chuck, what do you think the optimal number of interviews is? Do you uh, encourage folks to do some sort of test or assignment? Um, Again, knowing that people may be busy in in their current roles or, uh, you know, have lives outside of work. Yeah, I think I usually do encourage that. I think having a, a, a show, not tell step is valuable for most GTM hiring but always balancing the ask of candidates. And I think considering compensation, particularly if you're having people do homework, which is common for marketing hires, I do think making um, 
you know, offering nominal compensation is, is, is valuable. But to answer that question, I'd say, and here's the beauty of what we've discussed, like now we're turning this into a math problem, aren't we? And I'll, David made this easy because, you know, he shared, the five, so we're talking five to seven skills and competencies, right? Maybe how much time does it take you to assess for those and then work back from that to steps? And I think if you do that, most of the time, I mean, you'll see you can make these hires in, in three to five steps or stages. And if you feel like, well, it takes six or seven, right, have a math-based answer to that question. Well, we're actually assessing for nine competencies. Here's why. Here's what it takes. Great. Go forward. I'm not going to challenge you on that and say it's convoluted. I think a lot of frustration over hiring steps, and if you listen to candidates complaining on social media and elsewhere, they'll often point their finger at the steps, but it's not really the steps. It's the, it's the chaos, the redundancies, being asked the same questions by multiple panelists, seeing that people are not orchestrated and aligned. Um, that's where... I think a lot of the frustration comes from. But that said, it shouldn't be a dozen plus steps. And if it is, you're doing the math wrong. Totally. That's a really good point. I, I think of processes I've I've gone through where it's like, you know, okay, we're on interview four and I've told my story four times. Did, did you guys not talk? Right. Like, you know, we've, we've gone over this. Um, that's a really good point. If it feels like there's, they're testing for something else, you know, you're, you're less likely to push back and, and just communication of like, Hey, here's, here's the process. And here's, here's why, you know, and getting treated like an adult and a, a professional throughout the whole, whole process. Um, David thoughts on kind of optimal length. I say three to five. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's rarely, I think do you get it before three. I don't think you ever need more than five. And if you do, it's all the things Chuck said. I think the other thing I see sometimes is like, oh, I just have one more conversation. Just one more thing I want to ask Scott, right? Just one more. And you're like, well, you shouldn't have had it. You shouldn't need that one more if you had done the the right thinking and process and everything up front, because most likely you've got it. You know, I would say from an exercise perspective, to me, that is one where it's like, I agree mostly. I think it's, again, role dependent, but it's also the type of exercise. So a lot of times, and this is, I think, really critical for early, early, early stage is outside of the skill assessment you're trying to find in the exercise, a lot of the things that make or break the right hire is the fit, right? Like, can we really bounce ideas off each other? Can we really work well together? Are we going to, you know, and so on. And so I'm a big fan of the whiteboard exercise, right? In those scenarios where it's not necessarily a take-home assignment, but it's really more of like, okay, you know what? Let's get on an hour Zoom. Let's just pretend like we're working together. Here's a problem I'm trying to solve. How would you go solve it? Or we need to get in the door of these 50 types of accounts. How would you approach that? And challenge each other in a way that would, like you're simulating what it's going to be like working together. Mm -hmm. And at the end of it, do you want to put your hair in your head like, man, Scott just doesn't listen to me. Or hey, we're jiving, like we're really kind of seeing, you know, we're, we're able to really, you know, debate certain things and get to a good place of conclusion. And I think, again, for the early, earlier stage, right, where like, you know, there's a lot of that stuff matters, that needs to really happen as opposed to just the, and frankly, I'm going through this right now, the client where it's, hey, they just want them to do a take-home assi assignment. I'm like, but you're missing all the other stuff. And that's where you keep, when you see this revolving door that's happening, it's like, because you know, you, you just don't feel like they're, you, they're listening to you. You're not working well together. So anyways, I think to me, I would say for if you can make it work in that whiteboard session, that's going to be a lot more helpful than just the, hey, I gave somebody five days to go and turn around a document and yeah. and, uh, and then read the document. Yeah. I like that idea of a, a whiteboard session, particularly to kind of test for how how you work together. You know, that's, that's sometimes a missing piece yep. of this person could be exceptional. You could be exceptional leader, but if you're not working well together, you know, that's a, that's a problem. You know, I've always been a big yep. fan of take home assignments simply because 
personally, I don't know any other way to truly test for like grit or just how much you want it. You know, you'll just see by the effort that they put in to that assignment, how bought in they are. And maybe that's the next question. Outside of that, how do you two test for that ethereal thing that is grit, that is hunger, that is motivation, that is self-starter, that is, to me, the most important thing to look for, at least in the early stage, because you have to be a little bit insane to sign up to, you know, be part of a startup and do really hard things. And sometimes it takes long hours and sometimes you have to make sacrifices and there is a reward at the end if, if done well. But uh, how do you test for that thing? I got, I got a story, so um, I'll keep it brief here, but, and I'm not going to name names, although if she's listening to this, you, you know who I'm talking about here. I, I think one great example of where um, whatever the, and I think David makes a great suggestion in terms of like whiteboarding, but whatever that presentation or exercise is, one great way you can use these is to test for coachability. And I, I mean by that both the ability to take constructive feedback and also to then deliver and action that feedback. But people often forget the second part of coachability. And there was someone that we hired um, at, uh, at Motive when I was there who on the initial presentation, um, there were some gaps there. Um, we were close to a pass, but I, I presented feedback to this candidate and then she processed it and redid it and crushed it. And it was one of the best hires we made there, right? And so that's, and that wasn't kind of totally baked into our process then, by the way. It was kind of, that was a little bit of a, um, an ad hoc decision there. But I think it's, it's a key learning for me and for those listening, right? Is that remember to think about, it's not just about do they nail it out of the gates, but if you want to test for things like coachability, resiliency, grit, right? I think all somewhat related, you know, think about the, the opportunity there to um, not reduce your standards, right? If anything, again, like th- this was an example of like really thinking about what we want to assess for and then someone knocking it out of the park and proving to be a superb hire. David, you want to jump in there? Yeah, I, yeah, I would. I mean, I, I think like I agree with all that. I, the reason I even go back to them, I'm going to use my whiteboard example to answer this question is that, you know, there, there's, and actually there's two things, right? One is when I think of like grit, like what are we really saying, right? Like we want somebody who's going to run through walls, right? We want somebody who's just not going to stop. They're going to do whatever it takes to go figure this out. And the reason I'm such a fan of that whiteboard is you, there's certain things you just can't fake. And, and, and like, you can't go back and go, I'm going to spend an hour and I'm going to write this up and see, it's like, if I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to create scenarios of, Hey, this person isn't returning the call. This person isn't responding. This isn't happening. What are you going to go do? And if all I'm hearing is like the same, blah, 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 blah. And, and you know, and you're pushing and pushing and, you know, you've got to be, you got to be able to read, right. You got to be able to read what they're saying and see it, but you can see that spark, that thing. And I always combine that with, not necessarily on the whiteboard, but, and, and this goes back to, again, using a real life example, when I was at a you know, fintech company and we were building a very large sales org. And one of the things I kept thinking was like, well, not kept thinking, we knew is if you didn't have a chip on your shoulder, if there was something that w- you didn't have that thing, you just, you were going to be an okay player. You weren't going to be a killer player. And so you can call that per somebody's motivation. We call it the chip on the shoulder. And and, and, and to me, it's like, if you can't get that out of somebody, like really what drives you? Really, what is it? And sometimes, and if you don't hear it, I'm my fear is like, they're probably not going to have that grit. But when you hear that thing like, hey, I need to prove my to my parents that I can do this. I need to be able to do that. And you just hear that sincere thing and you combine that with that exercise. I'm like, you've got something now. You've got yeah. somebody who, who like, they, they won't let themselves fail. 
And you can just now hear it in the examples of which they're providing. So I think grit is hugely important if we're defining it that way. But I think there's multiple ways you can attack to go, okay, this person index is really high there or they really don't, right? Um, they, they seem to be somebody who's okay working that nine to five and they're not, you know, they just kind of, they don't have any creative thoughts and, you know, and whatever, and th- there doesn't seem to be something that's really burning in their belly every day. Yeah, that's a great call out. The, like the real time, you can't, you can't fake that of what just comes out of your mouth right. in real time during a whiteboard session. You know, you hit that part where you don't know the answer to something. How do they react to it? Is that like, you know, yeah. do they get creative? Do they send you an email afterwards? Be like, couldn't stop thinking about that. Here's actually what I would do. You know, there's like, there's a lot of right. things that, that, exactly. that real time um, communication will, will highlight. Um Chuck, any anything to to add there before we move on to uh, a founder question? No, I think I think it's a good. I'm I'm uh, I'm taking mental notes here on something I will be recommending to to my clients. I think it's a great way to see how people think and again to make sure you're you're making the best hire and tying that back to what you need in the business. So yeah, good stuff. I love it. We'll we'll go to a, a founder question really quick. I love this question. Of course, everything's contextual, but the question is: We're still in the early stages. We've got one AE and myself, the founder, running sales. It seems like we have the demand to make another hire. Should I opt for a sales leader at this point or another AE? Um, would love to hear uh, your guys' thoughts on that one. And David, maybe we'll we'll start with you. So great question. I would say it depends if that founder is somebody who is also a true sales founder, sales focused founder. I would not be hiring another. I would not be hiring a sales leader after my first sales hire. Right, that wouldn't be my second sales hire. Um, I think you know you, you, it's hard to prove in my mind repeatability and everything with just one hire. And also, you there might be different thoughts you have as what other kind of sales hire do you want to kind of show that you can really scale an org. So I would very much opt for that second one to be you know another AE. Um, that said, if you're and I've had, we have this with clients, I'm sure Chuck has it too, where. The, seat, the founder is just so uncomfortable in sales, just so uncomfortable doing that. It's so outside their, com- their comfort zone and they just don't know what they need to do. Then my answer would be different, right? And saying, okay, maybe now you need more of a lead AE that you know is going to carry a bag, but also help start to build and document process. So that's the, the way I would answer that. No, I totally agree. I mean, it, interesting. There, the, the, another scenario or exception might be if, if actually that founder is really good at sales, right? And there's, and there's, if you're seeing a lot of opportunity, the, the ICP is being validated and you've got your AE closing, you're closing, but it's like, you know, we, feel, we, we need process, you know, we, we feel like we're leaving revenue on the table. I mean, there may be considerations where it may make sense to think about that as a, as a leadership hire, but again, it comes down to the core needs and based on what you've shared, it, it that sounds like it's more of an AE hire at that stage, but um, it can depend yeah. as well. And just to make sure I'm hearing that, Correctly. So neither of you said go with the sales leader. The two options were one, uh, an AE, uh, or if you're uncomfortable selling and you're more of a technical founder, you, you would opt for like an AE lead, someone that could move into a leadership position. Did I hear that correctly? That, that's my answer for sure. I th- and again, and I think it, it's like, I mean, Chuck, also, again, the way he described that last scenario is, I mean, again, everything's contextual to your point. And if yeah. the company is just rocket ship and it's so clear it's a rocket ship and you're ready to go not just one new hire but you know there's gonna be 10 more right behind right. them then yeah maybe i'd say okay go get your vp of sales but re- most times that's not realistic right that happens you cap that in one hand how many times it really really happens right. and so particularly in this market right and so that's where i would very much go no you go ae 
And, and the, the only reason you want even that one to be maybe a lead is again, the fear, what you want to make sure is you've, you've started a document process. Here's how it works. Here's yeah. what we do. Here's what happens. And most AEs aren't great at documenting process to that level. And so that's where if you're there, okay, getting a fa- like an AE lead, somebody who's ready to become a manager can start doing that is great. But hiring a VP of sales, and we see this happen way too too often. So, oh, we got to go hire a killer head of sales. And you're like, you're just not there yet. Like, you know, you, yeah. you, it doesn't make sense. And, and that's where, you know, personally, I've suffered through that quite a bit as a founder. Um, okay. I got to, there was a hot button topic there, which is just leads, you know, uh, AE lead, BDR lead. There's a lot of folks on LinkedIn, on Twitter say those are bullshit roles. They never work. Personally, I have been one. That's how I got my first leadership role, got to build out programs from being a lead. I've seen it work. It worked in my career. Um, what are you both of your thoughts on, on leads? Um, obviously, if you're suggesting it, you do believe in them. Um, but I guess, what are the pros and cons of, of both? And Chuck, I'll, I'll start with you. And by lead, you mean like a, like a player coach type, like an individual player coach. kind of leading? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think it, um, for early stage, it's, it's vital, right? Because you, you know, th- and this is one of those early stage cliches that I think, you know, has a lot of currency, right? You need people who can, who can wear multiple hats, right? Because there's going to be a lot of chaos, there's ambiguity. And so inherently, I think having someone in the organization early on who can help provide coaching, guidance, development, like documenting things that are working, sharing use cases, you know, evangelizing internally and, and helping marketing as well is vital. And so um, I think without that, I mean, I, the alternative is not a great one, right? If you don't have somebody that, that, that has that at least, um, you know, kind of de facto set of responsibilities. And, and, and frankly, I think you want to codify that at a certain level is, is really important early stage until you get to the point where you're hiring actual managers. And at that point, I do think once companies start to scale up, I mean, that's where the player coach role can become very problematic quickly. But at the early stage that we're talking about here, I think it's vital. So yeah, I, I think I think leads are great. I'll tell you what I don't love, and I know this isn't your question, and I know we're running out of time, but is um, I don't love the heads of, where everybody yeah. goes, like, I'm a head of, head of. I think that creates a lot of problems down the road. But uh, but a lead, no, you, at these early stages, you need somebody in that lead role. Yeah, typically. agreed. I feel like head of is just, I don't want to make the decision yet. I'm just going to punt yeah. this decision of what you are down the line. And then, you know, we all know that, the longer you wait to make a decision, usually the harder it gets and the more complicated it gets. Um, so I would agree with that. Um, so that brings us to our next question. So that's, you know, what's one thing that founders or leaders believe to be true that you think is bullshit or no longer serving us? You know, David, that's one is don't use head ofs. That seems more popular than ever. Uh, Jack, what's one uh, from your end? I'll, I'll pick one here. I, I hate the notion of hire slow, fire fast. And it's not because I don't think you should hire judiciously, but A, we've talked about it, right? It promotes bad behaviors in hiring. And B, it's just, it's the wrong attitude to have when you're team building, and particularly in this market where you, you, need to, you need to get your hires right. Like you shouldn't be hiring with an eye that some people are not going to work out. And that's not to advocate for, you know, letting kindness get in the way of decisiveness, but you should be hiring with the thought that every hire you make is going to be successful. And and if you're falling back on that cliche, you maybe need to take a hard look at how you think about onboarding and enablement to make sure that those hires come in, can learn the business efficiently and effectively and achieve the goals that you've set out for them. Yeah. Yeah. David, I'll take that question and flip it in a more positive light for you. What's one hiring tactic or strategy 
that you're seeing is working right now that leaders listening can implement today? There's something that's been on my mind for a while, like I'd say a year, and I'm starting to see, I think, come to fruition a little bit, which is, you know, for a long time, I think people are like, look, I'm going to hire somebody from this company because they're a hotshot company and this person's going to crush it and they're going to do great. But the truth is most of those companies and people who are at those companies have never seen cycles. They've never seen downturns. They've never seen, you know, really tough times. And we're in a tough time and, it's, and who knows the prolonged tough time and how do you sell in a tough time or market in a tough time. And so I think this, like that default, I'm just going to grab somebody who sold for Salesforce or whatever it is, is starting to kind of slow down a little bit. And I think there's a little bit more of now that creativity of kind of what we've been talking about, those traits, but like, okay, we're somebody who's used, whether it's because they've been around multiple cycles or they've just had to really sell that just tough sale and how can that be applicable here? And so for a while, it just felt like I need the be- somebody coming from the best company with the biggest logo out there. And now I think we're starting to see that, um, you know, much more of that open-mindedness. Yeah, I agree. It feels like that is completely breaking down. I'm seeing that from my lens is that that traditional, oh, this person worked at XYZ, good brand names, let's hire them. I feel like there's been enough cycles now of people trying that and it not working that they're willing to test other things, uh, including, you know, more diverse, you know, backgrounds. Um, I love this idea of like, hiring your buyer and depending on who you buy into, you know, is like, it's a really powerful idea. If you can go, even if you're selling into, you know, engineers and you can find an engineer who is sick of, you know, coding or wants a new challenge and you can get them to be, you know, one of your first AEs and coach up the rest of your A's. Like that's a really, really powerful thing that I think a lot about. Um, Chuck, what's one thing you're seeing that, uh, is working out there. Can I, yeah, I, I want me to add to that. I think you guys are making great points here that um, I think just being healthily neutral about rift talent. So I'm making up words here, but by that I mean like, you know, you, you may want to look for people that have certain backgrounds. Scott, I love the idea of hiring people who've been in, in buyer roles. Um, but however you're thinking about that and, and potential like backgrounds um, of interest, right? When folks are on the market, right? Um, it doesn't mean they were mediocre, but it also doesn't mean they were crushing it, right? People, riffs come in many different flavors and oftentimes like they can be, you know, they can be guided by desire to, you know, trim the fat for lack of a better metaphor, right? And, and you should you assume that? Absolutely not, right? There are some exceptional people with the open to work flag. You shouldn't hold that against people, but you also, again, shouldn't make assumptions. And I agree with you both for the most part that I think people are uh, being a little bit more open to different backgrounds, but I think there's more that this needs to continue, right? That we're not fully there yet. And some people are still overly enamored and focused on certain backgrounds. Now, some companies can kind of pull this off. Like, you know, we have some clients that are best of the best and frankly, they can do that, right? They can, they can be more selective, but if we're focused on, you know, early stage companies, even if you've got a lot of momentum, it's, it's not going to help you like be intellectually curious and open to all different backgrounds, build your process. And you know, this is a great time to hire. Like one thing we haven't said, right? It's, what a great time to be hiring. There are amazing people out there. I, you know, some days I'll look back in conversations I've had and just amazed at who's out there. And, and so if I'm hiring right now, like, you know, think about it that way, right? I want to go out and get some of these exceptional people and not, and not for goodness sake, I don't want to be arbitrary and close. I want to make sure I'm hiring the best, right? I think that's a good place to wrap up. Like, remember two years ago when we were in this war for talent where like you couldn't find anyone that yeah. was good and willing to jump. And now there's like, it's the opposite. There's so much incredible 
talent out there, you know, using the same analogy, like the it's the special ops are are available now, you know, in this war. Go go find them. Now is the time to company build. You don't have to go on huge hiring spurts, but you can be super oppor- opportunistic in, in bringing some incredibly, incredibly talented folks uh, in. Um, well, Chuck, David, this has been super fun. Uh, thank you both for for taking the time. David, I know you're you're traveling, so thanks for doing this out of the, the hotel room. Um, and, you know, Chuck, always a pleasure. Uh, if folks, you know, are having hiring challenges, thinking about, planning their next stage of growth or you know actively need you know some some recruiting help right now uh where's the best place to get in touch with you uh both and uh david i'll start with you yeah i mean honestly feel free to email me anytime you know it's you know david at accelerate and and i think one thing you said there uh and i know chuck and i have talked about this a lot and, and we totally agree with this i would even make an argument don't think about us only as you need help to recruit Think about us from a perspective of how do I go accomplish, we're trying to accomplish these goals and use us almost as an advisor, if you would, as to think about what kind of team should you be building? Is that the right team? There's plenty of times I think we both talk companies out of hiring roles because what they were thinking wouldn't make a lot of sense for their business on what they're trying to do. And, you know, let us help you in those earlier stages, think it through. And if that requires recruiting, we're happy to help as well. Um, and, uh, but to get to your to answer your question, that's the best way to get in, in, in contact with me. And, and for me, it's Chuck at BlueprintExpansion.com. And totally agree with David. The last thing I'll say on this topic, I mean, I've been for months, you know, talking to some exceptional, um, you know, revenue and GTM leaders out there. And, you know, often, I, you know, it's, these are coaching conversations, networking conversations. Um, you know, I'd like to say, and I've been told I, I've been very helpful for talent. It's the exact same concept applied to hiring companies. Like Dave and I, I think, are very aligned on this. You know, we, we, we love go to market. We love team building and hiring. The last thing, you know, that I expect is that, you know, before I have a conversation, someone has to have Rex served up for me to, to run. That's not how I run my business. We want to be helpful. Um, we're long game oriented and uh, welcome any inquiries. And th- Scott, thanks for having us on this. Pod. This has been a blast. Yes, this is awesome. Of course, and I'll just under- underscore uh, what what Chuck and David said. You know, there's a reason there are official, you know, GTM talent uh, partners uh, is because you know they truly take that consultative uh, approach, and I appreciate that about you guys. You guys are thinking about the business as as a whole, and folks can um, you know benefit from all the knowledge that you guys both have uh, in your heads, far beyond just you know getting the right butt in the seat so i appreciate you both um and you know to the listeners thanks for hanging out with us uh always appreciate you lending us your eardrums um of course listening is one thing executing is something totally different so make sure you apply uh, what you have learned here today uh, to your respective businesses and uh we'll see you next week 